0: Thank you, John, for kind words and your prayer. Melinda told me that uh, Patricia made her own breakfast this morning for the first time. I'm sure she was in fear again that I might feed her something that I had prepared, which would be a fate worse than death. So there is a little bit of progress. And we're grateful for all of the little indications that uh, she is progressing. It's awfully hard without her fully functioning, because she's obviously in charge of so many important things in our little family's life. Thank you for your prayers. And I am so excited about the beginning of our year. I'm blessed to be able to speak to you and and to begin to know some of you and to get acquainted with you, and uh, I just believe God is going to give us the greatest year we've ever had. We're all here by divine appointment. The Lord has brought us together for just such a time as this, and and we want to draw out of it everything that he intends for us to have. So we're going to be praying for you that God will make this the best year of your life. Let's go back to 1 uh, Timothy again and continue our discussion of what it means to be a true child in the faith. A true child in the faith. Sometime back I wrote a, a letter, somewhat of a long letter. I don't usually write long letters, I have too many letters to answer, but once in a while I write a long letter, and I wrote a long letter sometime back to a rather prominent man, a a great man in Christian ministry. The reason I wrote it was because this man was so sorrowful, he was so hurt, so wounded about the drift that had occurred in a great Christian organization. Here was a man who had given his life to a certain Christian organization poured himself into that organization to keep it strong to keep it true to the Word of God and as soon as he moved away from it it had become ineffective and weak and compromising in writing the letter to him I shared the fact that very few great ministries survive the death of the original visionary man of God who gave those ministries life and energy. Very few Christian organizations or ministries survive the death of the man who, who was the dramatic driving force. Very few ministries survive the tremendous influence of unusually gifted people of God. Usually what happens is a series of compromises. I suppose um, I haven't had that experience, like some, because I've stayed in the same church for my whole ministry, and never having left, I've never had to live to see what happens when I leave. But I did watch my father pastor a number of churches and watch the frequent sadness of his heart as he, having poured himself into a church for many years, would leave and go somewhere else and look back in sometimes a matter of a brief few years to see the disintegration of that ministry. Lest you think that that happens to men who perhaps aren't as noble as others, I would simply remind you that that was the experience of the Apostle Paul, who himself was used by God to found the seven churches that we see in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, which churches started on a process of defection not long after Paul himself had left. One of those churches was Ephesus. Paul, having spent three years there, gave them the best that, that he had, he failed not to teach them the whole counsel of God, he says in Acts 20. In fact, he gave them everything that he had in terms of truth that God had revealed to him. He taught them not only publicly, but from house to house. That is, he was not only disseminating the truth in public meetings, but he was going door to door and applying the word of God and the truth of God to individual lives and families. He was zealous, probably beyond all men. He was equipped with nothing but the truth, never teaching any error, because His sermons were basically founded on revelation from God, which is without error. So Ephesus had the very best. Paul went into prison, his first imprisonment. And while he was in prison, the church at Ephesus began to defect. Bad leadership came in, false shepherds, false teachers, men who lived immorally rather than godly lives, The church began to abandon sound doctrine and even began to turn away from moral living. When Paul came out of his first imprisonment, he was deeply concerned about what he had heard about this church at Ephesus, which he loved so profoundly. And so he got a hold of Timothy and he said, Timothy, I want you to meet me in Ephesus. And so coming out of prison, he went to Ephesus and there he met Timothy and he saw what was going on in the church. And he said, Timothy, I can't stay here. I've got to go west. I've got to take care of some other things that God has put into my heart, but I want you to stay and fix this. So he wrote to Timothy these two letters after he had left him there. Having been gone maybe only a few weeks, he writes back 1 Timothy, and a little while later he writes back 2 Timothy to tell Timothy what he expects him to do, because he hears that it isn't very easy. That sets the scene for the letter that we're looking at called 1 Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. It's a tough place to be. Why? Because he's a stranger. Because he's young. In fact, Paul said to him, let no man despise your youth. Don't let anybody look down on you just because you're only in your mid-thirties. Make sure you check your own life, do a little spiritual inventory, and flee youthful lusts. Make sure you're true to the faith. Stay firm, stay strong, because you're the next generation of leader that that church needs. Here was Paul trying to hold on to the character and quality of this church by putting it in the hands of another man. We can't be certain exactly what effect Timothy had, but we do know that about... Thirty years after Timothy had been there, the church at Ephesus, according to Revelation 2, had left its first love and was on a slide. And it seems to reinforce the idea that a ministry is only as good as the strength of the leader there or the leaders there. And very often when a very gifted and godly and strong leader leaves, there is a serious decline in that ministry's character. Paul didn't want that to happen in Ephesus, and so he put Timothy in there and said, keep it strong. And in so doing, he gives us a model for how you pass the baton, as we saw on Wednesday, to someone else to carry the burden, to run the race. That's really what the Christian life is all about. I spent some time with one of my sons last night, and the goal of my time with my son last night was to encourage him that the single most heartfelt concern that I had in my life for him was that he would take the baton of spiritual commitment from me and make sure he carried it and passed it on to his own children. That's what a father is to do. That's certainly what a mother is to do. That's what we are to do as Christians as we endeavor to reproduce ourselves and make spiritual children, producing disciples. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Timothy. It's all about helping him to know what to do to keep that church in Ephesus strong. Timothy had to fight them, their sins, their failures, their bad leadership. And he also had to fight himself because he had his own problems. He tended to be timid, as 2 Timothy 1 tells us. He tended to be overwhelmed by some of the error for which he didn't have a sound apologetic and couldn't argue toe-to-toe. He tended to be overwhelmed by the persecution that was coming against him, both inside the church and outside the church. He tended to be lonely because he was trying to set things right, and it seemed as though everybody was working against him. So he had a lot of battlefronts, but nonetheless, Paul was concerned that he'd be faithful. And so Paul writes these letters to him to keep him strong. And they really teach us a lot about discipleship. I wish we had the time. In fact, we could, if uh, the Lord ever allowed it, offer a discipleship course here at the college. It would just take us through 1 and 2 Timothy and fill out the full-color portrait of what it is to, to make a disciple. But looking back at that little phrase in verse 2, let's pick it up again. Chapter 1, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. This identif- identifies Timothy as a real disciple. Paul had really reproduced himself in this Young man, as I noted for you last time in 1 Corinthians 4:17, Paul said, "I'm so concerned about you that I'm going to send Timothy, who will bring you into remembrance of all my ways." He is a carbon copy. He is a rubber stamp. I also reminded you of Philippians chapter two, where the apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, again identifies Timothy and says, "I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare." There's no one like Timothy. He is to me, he says, like a child serving his father. That's really what we want to produce in this whole matter of discipleship. A true child in the faith. And I reiterate again what I said on Wednesday, that the greatest joy you'll ever have in your life as a Christian is to see someone following in your path in the way of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. To be able to say to someone, be ye followers of me as I am of Jesus Christ. I'm following Christ, you follow me, and you'll follow Christ as well. That's a high calling. So Timothy was a true replica of Paul. He was a living example and model of the genuine founder, as it were, of, of the Christian faith in the Gentile world. We noted that there were five, we're going to give you five characteristics of a true child. Of the faith, And these are the things that you need to be working on in your own life and reproducing in the lives of those you disciple. Number one is saving faith. And I don't want to spend time reviewing it. I just want to remind you that last time we said one of the things that marked out Timothy as a genuine child in the faith was that he had a true saving faith. He was a real Christian. Churches are filled today with people who are not Christians. It was probably 15 years ago that Billy Graham made the statement, the greatest evangelistic field in America is the church. There's no question about that in my mind. Churches are literally packed with people who do not know Christ. That is true even in my church. I am continually amazed at the people who all of a sudden, out of the blue, having been there for years, announce that they have just become Christians to say nothing of churches where the Word of God is not taught and where the gospel is emasculated and presented as a form of easy believism. But Timothy had genuine saving faith, and we noted that. Now, I want to go on to a second mark or a second characteristic of a genuine child in the faith, a real disciple, and that is this. He is marked not only by saving faith, but by continuing obedience but by continuing obedience. Recently, had the occasion to speak to a lady whose husband had died. And she said to me, Oh, you know, it's really wonderful because he's finally out of his pain and he's in heaven with the Lord. This was a phone conversation, and at that point, I was glad that you couldn't see the expression on my face. I said to her, You believe that he's with the Lord? Oh, yes, she said. I remember the night he went forward some, yea, 50 years before. The man died, total alcoholic, and had been for years, evil, disinterested in the church, disinterested in the Scriptures, disinterested in Jesus Christ, gave no regard to anything that was precious to true believers, and yet she believed he was in heaven. The true child of the faith is known by a pattern of continuing obedience. There were some people in the church at Ephesus who didn't demonstrate this. Go down to verse 18 in chapter 1. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, Keeping the faith and the good conscience, which some have rejected. There are some people who had sometimes stuck their hand in the air in the church at Ephesus or prayed a prayer or said they were Christians, but they didn't keep the faith. They did not maintain a good conscience. What is a good conscience? A good conscience is a conscience that doesn't accuse you. The reason it doesn't accuse you is because it doesn't have anything to accuse you of. You're dealing with sin in your life. You're walking in obedience. But these people rejected the faith, and they rejected the good conscience. They suffered shipwreck. And then he names them, at least two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and I have delivered them to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. There are some people who look like they have a good start, but they shipwreck their lives before they ever reach the harbor. By a violent and deliberate rejection, and the Greek terms here mean that, a violent and deliberate rejection and repudiation of the faith. As opposed to to holding on to the truth, holding on, retaining sound words, and we'll see more about that, they apostatize, they defect, they reject willfully God's truth in favor of blasphemous and satanic lies. This was a a somewhat common problem. I believe Hymenaeus and Alexander were probably two of the pastors or former pastors in that church who had rejected the faith. And they were at the highest level of leadership. Go into chapter 2 and you can see some others who apparently were rejecting the truth of God. You see uh, women in verse 9 who are told to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with plaited, literally hair. That's hair woven with pearls and gold and costly garments, what that tells me is there were women who were showing off when the church got together by wearing their fortune on their head. They were dressing immodestly and indiscreetly and parading themselves for obviously sexual and materialistic purposes. They were not characterized by good works as befits women who make a claim to godliness. There were some who at one point in time made a claim to godliness, but they were not continuing in a path of obedience. And it goes on to say in verse 15 that they should be delivered from the stigma of leading the race into sin, as in the case of Eve, through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. That could apply to the children, but also could apply to the women who are to maintain their faith and continue in it and continue in love and continue in sanctity or holiness with a certain amount of self-restraint or self-discipline. So here you had defecting leaders You had defecting women from the pattern that God had established for them. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And we noted that last time. This simply reminds us there will be other defectors. People literally who will fall away from the faith. They will make some pretense. They are like the rocky soil and uh, the seed goes in and some, something sort of pops up, but it dies. Or they're like the, the weedy ground where the seed goes in and it's choked out by the love of the world or the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So there were some people who were led astray by deceitful spirits. ...propagating demonic theology through the mouths of hypocritical liars. And then in chapter 6, we find some other defectors in this church at Ephesus and certainly elsewhere. In verse 9, he says, "...but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare... ...and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction... ...for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil... And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. Leaders defecting from the faith because they will not maintain the faith and a good conscience. Women defecting from the faith because they want to live in an indiscreet, immodest, and self-indulgent way. Others defecting from the faith because they are deluded and duped by seducing spirits. Others defecting from the faith because they love money and all that money can buy and thus they wander away. Intellectual pride, discontent with God's design, sexual desire, lust for money, all kinds of things cause people to defect from the faith. But true children in the faith have a pattern of continued obedience. In 1 John 2.19, John tells us these very important words. He says, speaking of some defectors, "...they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us." When you see someone who makes a profession of faith in Christ, but does not have a pattern of continuing obedience... You are looking at a defector who went away and demonstrated that he never belonged in the first place or she never belonged in the first place. In John eight thirty one and 32, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are my mathetes alethos. That means a real disciple. A real disciple. Timothy was a real one. Timothy was not like the defectors. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 2, it says about Timothy that he was well spoken of by the brethren. In chapter 4, for example, of 1 Timothy, you you get a glimpse of Timothy's character in verse 6. He says, "...in pointing out these things to the brethren, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine than this, which you have been, what? Following. You can look at Timothy's life and you will see a pattern of continuing obedience. You have been following that. That's the pattern of your life. Timothy's obedience. Timothy's perseverance was enough to demonstrate that he was a true child of the faith. Let me take you to a third principle. A third mark, as it were, of true children in the faith. Humble service. Saving faith, continuing obedience, and humble service. Salvation always leads to service. Service is simply a a form of obedience. Dedicated stewardship of life to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, which is what salvation involves, will lead one to serve the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples upon calling them, follow me. Didn't he not, did he not say that? He didn't say believe in me. He said follow me. And he said follow me and I will make you into something. What? Fishers of men. Follow me and I will produce in you a life of effective ministry. Follow me and I'll make you into a servant. That is an inevitable consequence of true salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9 is one of the great verses describing true conversion. And it says about the Thessalonians, You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You turned to God from idols with the purpose of serving. For that service, the Lord has given us spiritual gifts. For that service, the Lord has mandated us to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, there are some people who will claim to be Christians, but they apparently have no interest in serving the Lord. They have no commitment to service. Apparently in the church at Ephesus there were those kinds of people. Chapter 3, verse 6 talks about people who become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. In other words, those are recent converts who swell up with pride and will be condemned for pride like Satan was condemned for pride. In other words, they look at coming to Christ not as a path to humility and humble service, but as something to exalt themselves. In chapter 5, again, it is possible even for people in leadership to be engaged in sinning rather than serving. In verse 19 he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And those who continue in sin rebuke In the presence of all, so that the rest may fear or be fearful of sinning. Don't you lay hands, verse 22, on anybody too fast. So you be careful how you choose leaders, because some of them will have a pattern of sinning rather than a pattern of serving the flock. In chapter 6, verse 4, we're introduced to conceited people who are in the church. They don't understand anything. They just want to get into controversy and disputes about words. And their attitudes are envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion. They create constant friction. They are of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. They think godliness should make them rich. And on and on he goes about talking uh, talking about these people who are proud, who offer no humble service, who are swollen with their own sense of self-importance, who are pompous ignoramuses who want merely to argue. They are corrupt and they are money-hungry. They're in the church. John talks about a Diotrephes who is there not because he wants to serve, but because he loves to have the preeminence. The church has people like that. They're there to become wealthy, or they're there to gain for themselves some prestige or some elevation in the mind and the eyes of others. They're there to be highly esteemed by people. They have no interest in serving. But a true child in the faith, a true disciple, is one who becomes a servant. And I really believe that that was the case with Timothy. I believe that it was the pattern in the life of Timothy to be a servant. That is inherent in Paul even leaving him there. He left him there and he willingly stayed to serve Paul and to serve the Lord. He took commands very well. In verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul urged him. In verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul entrusted him and commanded him. And in chapter 4, Paul commands him in verse 11. He commands him all through that section. He tells him in verse 14, don't neglect your gift. In verse 15, take pains with these things. In verse 16, pay close attention. He continually gives Timothy orders. And Timothy does not chafe and he does not negatively react because he has the heart of a servant. In chapter 6, verse 20, he says, O Timothy... Guard what has been entrusted to you. You've been given a servanthood. You've been given a stewardship. Romans 16, 21, Paul calls Timothy my fellow worker, my humble servant, the one who willingly comes alongside to render service. So those who are true children in the faith are servants. And it is not always easy. Just a reminder, in Second Timothy, I mentioned it earlier, it got so hard for Timothy in verse 8, 2 Timothy 1, that Paul says to him, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. When it comes hard and heavy, When the persecution from outside the church is heavy. When the Ephesian errorists with their sophisticated philosophy bombard you and you can't answer it. When inside the church the ungodly leaders are attacking your integrity and credibility. When you're feeling the heat inside, outside and the suffering is more than you can bear. Just remember me and remember what I have suffered in prison because when Paul writes this he is in prison. In just a few weeks Since his departure from Timothy, he has been incarcerated again and for the last time. And he says, Timothy, when it gets tough, you continue humble service. And remember, I'm in prison for what I'm doing. This is part of being a faithful servant. A faithful servant will pay whatever price to discharge his servitude. Back in Acts chapter 20, Paul really set, I think, the standard, at least for me, when he said this. I do not consider my life of any account, verse 24, as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. My life is not an issue. I am expendable for the sake of the service to which I am called. Fourth mark of a true child in the faith is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. True Christians are going to hold to sound doctrine. True disciples are going to follow the path of sound teaching. Now, obviously, there were some in Ephesus who did not. Again, that church had people who were not true children in the faith. Verse 4 of chapter 1, again, I remind you, there were some there. He says in verse 3 teaching strange doctrines, myths, endless genealogies, giving rise to speculation. In verse 7, people who wanted to be teachers of the law and didn't know what they were talking about. Verse 20, those who had blasphemed and needed to be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 4, verse 7, some of them teaching worldly fables that were fit only for old women. That was, by the way, a sort of a, an epithet that was used among philosophers when they wanted to discredit what some other philosopher said. They would say, ah, that's nothing fit for anybody but a senile old woman. So all the way through, we we obviously are aware that people were teaching unsound doctrine. Chapter 6, verse 3, he says to Timothy, "...if anybody advocates a different doctrine and doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing." So here you have people teaching myths, unsound doctrine, endless genealogies, wrong interpretations of the law... People doting over questions that had no value, teaching doctrines other than what Christ taught that led to lasciviousness rather than godliness. Over in chapter 6, verse 20, he calls their teaching worldly empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So that was in the church. And I just warn you that it'll always be around the church. Unsound doctrine because Satan fights back with error. Myths, long lists of ancestors, godless legends not worth telling, misinterpretations of the law, speculations about nothing of value, opposing godliness and truth was rampant. Mindless heresies, Christless legends. And so Paul says, Timothy, my true child in the faith, I know you are committed to sound Doctrine. He would have to have been, because in verse 3 he says, You have to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. You couldn't instruct other people unless you knew the truth. Over in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he says to him, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. And the next verse, verse 14, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That's truth. Scripture. Hold on to it. You have been taught the truth. You believe the truth. You have been following the truth. Don't let go of it. Hold on to it. Again, a true child in the faith is one who affirms sound doctrine. He reminds Timothy in chapter 4, verse 11, to command and teach sound doctrine. Verse 16, to hold on and persevere in sound doctrine. In chapter 2 at the end of the verse, chapter 6 rather, verse 2 at the end of the verse, teach and preach these principles, the principles of truth. The true child of the faith, again, is marked out as one who is committed to sound doctrine. Timothy is told in verse 11 of chapter 6, you man of God, follow righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then this, fight the good fight of faith. What does that mean? Battle for the true faith. Battle for the true faith. How do you know then when you produce a true disciple? How do you know when you have a true child? Saving faith, continued obedience, humble service, sound doctrine. That's what you're trying to see reproduced in the life of another disciple and then there is a final one let's call it courageous conviction courageous conviction spiritual growth and the discipling process should end up in producing a strong person that's not popular today by the way it's popular to be a compromiser today it's popular to vacillate it's popular to say, well, we just want to love everybody and we don't want to make any waves. It's popular to say, well, this is a very time, a time for people to feel good about themselves and to boost their self-esteem and to have a sense of self-respect. And if we go around attacking what they believe, you know, we're going to make them feel bad. It's not a time for uncompromising stand on truth. It's, it's not a time for courageous conviction. It's a time to be relevant. And as I said in seminary chapel yesterday, to be relevant to our world is to be irrelevant to God. We need people with a spirit of no compromise. And that's what is so important to Paul. Again, in the church at Ephesus, they were into compromise big time. They were compromising. Men had compromised the role of men. And in chapter 2, he reminds them that men have a role of of pursuing holiness in the church, women had compromised the role of women, and instead of bringing up children and raising them to be a godly generation, and instead of carry about, carrying themselves about in humility, submission, and modesty, they had overstepped their bounds. In chapter five, we learn verse six that she who lives, uh, who gives herself to wanton pleasure, is dead even while she lives. There were women in the church who were literally giving themselves over to wanton pleasure. Chapter 5, verse 11. He says, I I want you to refuse to put any younger widows on the church list. That's a support list where you pay their, their needs because their husbands are dead. Don't put younger widows on the list because when they feel sensual desires, the need for cohabitation, they will disregard Christ. They want to get married. They will incur condemnation. They'll set aside their previous pledge. What is he talking about? Well, there are women who make vows... And then when their passion gets excited, they violate those vows. They say, no, my husband died. I'll serve the Lord and I'll serve the church. Put me on the list, support me. And then they get the, the passions for some guy. And the implication here is he's most likely an unbeliever. And they lustfully engage in a in a relationship that ends up in marriage. And they disgrace the church. So he says, you tell those younger women that they need to get married as soon as their husband dies or soon after that because that's going to keep them pure and that's going to give them the guidance spiritually they need. Don't have them taking vows they can't keep and then operating on passion. Tell them, verse 14, to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. If they try to live celibate lives, they're going to get into lustful relationships that are going to end up in bad marriages. Don't let them get to the point where they start to function on their lust you lead them to someone who can marry them in Christ that's the implication of all of that so well, there were women in the church who were not faithful they were not holding the courage of their convictions they were making vows they couldn't keep and they were compromising there were people as i noted in chapter 6 verse 10 who were compromising over money people who were compromising over false doctrine in fact in chapter 2 uh, chapter 3 rather verse 15 He says, Timothy, I'm writing this whole deal so that you can know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. I'm teaching you how to live in the church. And that means dealing with all these myriad of compromises. The leaders had compromised. And he has to tell them the qualifications of an elder. The deacons had compromised. And he has to remind them about the qualifications for a deacon. The congregation, the men had compromised, the women had compromised, the younger women had compromised. All this compromise was not consistent with being a true child of the faith. But Timothy, he didn't compromise. Paul is saying to him, I want you to hold on to the things that you've always held on to. I don't want you to neglect your spiritual gift. I want you to grow spiritually. I want you to preach the word. I want you to be faithful. I want you to guard the treasure. I want you to be a defender of the faith who fights the good fight of faith to the end. It's a good footnote, by the way. The best we can tell, Timothy died in about 97 A.D. Tradition tells us that he was killed as a martyr because he was opposing the vile perversion of idolatry, sexual idolatry, connected with the cult of Diana of the Ephesians. He had the courage of his conviction right to the end. He had what chapter 3, verse 13 calls a high standing and great confidence in the faith. Young people, let me just kind of sum this up in a minute. We should be all about reproducing ourselves. And what is it that we want to reproduce in the lives of others, which obviously has to be true in our own life first, Saving faith, continuing obedience, humble service, sound teaching, and courageous conviction. From a spiritual standpoint, we would like to accomplish that in your life here. We'd like to be sure that your faith is saving faith. We'd like to be certain that you are living a life of continued obedience to Christ. We would like to believe that you are committed to a humble service, that you are committed to sound teaching, and that you have the courage of your convictions to stand in the midst of error and sin. We would like to raise up generation after generation of such spiritual children. But you're a part of that process. Necessarily, you're a part of that process day in, day out, day in, day out, as you influence the lives of those around you. Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful insight into Timothy, that you've given us in these letters, and we pray, O God, that we might be faithful to be a part of accomplishing this kind of discipleship in the lives of others. Bring them to us and make us the kind of people who are marked by these five characteristics and thus can pour them into the life of others. We'll give you all the glory and thankful that we can have any part in accomplishing your purpose for Christ's sake. Amen.